0: Hey, glad you're here today. Uh, Thrilled we get to spend this time together. A couple just real quick announcements before we dig into our sermon time this morning. Uh, If you've got an elementary age kid in your life, you want to be sure you know about an event coming up Saturday afternoon. Uh, Crazy craft fair thing going on. Kara's got planned. So if you've got elementary kids, our Faith Kids stuff is going on even on Saturday this coming week. So be sure that uh, your kids are here for that. Also, we are two weeks away now from our ministry fair. That's going to happen out here in the atrium before and after our services that morning on October the 8th. Uh, This is part of our Say Yes series that we're in, and it's just a chance for us to uh, to communicate to you as the church, here's some things uh, that are going on in the church, some places you can get involved, places you can serve uh, both in the church and through the church. We want you to know about those, and that's what's going on September 8th, so be sure you're here for that. And then on September, 20th, or September October 22nd, uh, September 22nd was a day or two ago, October 22nd, uh, we will be having uh, one of our biggest events of the year. We call it Flannel by the Fire. That's a Sunday evening event outside Bonfire, wear your flannel shirt, chili cook-off, all kinds of fun activities for not just the kids, but for grown-ups as well. So uh, just plan to be here that evening for a great night. Bring the kids, bring the neighbors, bring the grandkids, uh, bring your friends, and we'll just have a wonderful time at our Flannel by the Fire uh, coming up on October 22nd. We are in this sermon series. I'm cutting in and out. Is that me? Are we good? Did you? Okay. All right. Um, We're in the sermon series we're calling Say Yes. And this fall, we are challenging ourselves as individuals who follow Christ, maybe individuals. Individuals who don't yet follow Christ, we're challenging ourselves as a church, as a body, to say yes. And specifically, the challenge is for us to say yes to participating in the kingdom of God. I love that word, participate, because it's really easy to just come to church and sit and watch. And think, well, I've, I've done my God thing. I've done my religion thing because I came and watched. But God calls us to participate in his kingdom. Uh, Pastor Rich Viotis, one of my favorite pastors, I love to read his stuff. Uh, he's, he pastors a, a multicultural church in Brooklyn. He says this, God calls us to be pilgrims, but we'd rather be tourists. I thought that's great imagery. We'd rather just observe, just watch. He goes on, a pilgrim is led by God into the unknown, A pilgrim is invited to trust. A tourist just wants to sightsee on his or her own terms. Well, what we're doing in this series is we're talking about some ways that we can participate in the kingdom of God. And what I want to talk about today, I think, is one of the most important, it's one of the most foundational ways that you can participate in the kingdom of God, and that is to say yes to following Jesus, to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, to follow him, to be obedient to him, to be baptized. That's what I want to talk about today. But for us to talk about this, for us in order, in order for us to take this step and in order for us to come to a place in our life where we're willing to say yes to Jesus, we have to understand just how big and how loving and how gracious this God who is calling us to participate in his kingdom. We need to know how loving and how gracious he really is. So once again today, we turn to one of the parables of Jesus. That's what we've done the last several weeks. Look at these stories that Jesus tells that help us understand what God's like and help us understand what the kingdom of God's like. Because we know that Jesus, when he, he taught us to pray, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What that means is we want up there, we want the kingdom Of heaven to be demonstrated here. We want up there to come down here. We want it to come now. And so Jesus tells us these stories about what the kingdom of God looks like, not just when we die and go to heaven, but today. Now, here's what the kingdom of God looks like. And the parable we're gonna look at today that Jesus tells, the story that Jesus tells gives us such a glimpse of who God is and of what God is like. And he shows us a picture of a gracious God. What does the Bible mean when it talks about God being gracious? I think we misunderstand the concept of grace because we ten, tend to put grace into human terms. And human grace is different than God's grace. If we're talking about a person being gracious, you've maybe been t- called that before, we typically say, you know, she is such a gracious host, he is such a gracious guy. He is such a gracious pastor. I hear that all the time. Not from any of you, but I hear that all the time. (laughs) We think of gracious as someone who is nice, someone who is tolerant, someone who is kind, patient. But what does it mean in the Bible? When the Bible says, when we read that God is gracious... That this God who's calling us into his kingdom is a grace-filled, gracious God. What does that mean? Well, to help us get a picture of what that looks like, Jesus tells us a story. It's in Matthew chapter 20. You got a Bible? You can, you can turn there and follow along. I hope you'll at least go read it uh, <clears throat> when you get home today. It's a story about some workers. They're working in a vineyard. That was a typical in the first century. And these workers had a very gracious boss. He was particularly, this boss, was particularly gracious when it came to his payroll. Wouldn't we all like to work for a boss like that? The story begins in Matthew 20, verse 1. Again, this is Jesus telling a story to help us understand what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like. Early one morning, a man went out to hire some workers in his vineyard. Here's the picture in the center of town, maybe around the well or in the marketplace, there's some guys gathered around. There's kind of this employment pool. They just gather there every day in hopes that someone would come by and hire them to work for the day. It's about six o'clock in the morning. That's when the Jewish day began here in the first century. All of a sudden, these guys gathered around this well pool, this employment, we'll just call it the employment pool. As they're gathered around there, all of a sudden the owner of a vineyard comes along and sees some guys who are looking for work And they're hoping that they will get work for the day because if they don't get work, they're not going to be able to feed their families that day. They're not going to be able to pay their bills. They live day to day, looking for work each day to make it through that day. So the guy, the owner of the vineyard, says to some of the fellows around the employment pool, would you like to come and work in my vineyard today? And of course, they're like, yes, please, we'd love to work. It's six o'clock in the morning. He says, how much would you charge me for you to come work in my vineyard today? They say, how about a fair day's wages? Now, there was a number in the first century culture. We don't know exactly what that number is, how that would translate into, the, into today's dollars. But for our purposes, to help us understand the story of Jesus, let's put a dollar figure on it. So let's say these the fair day wages from working from six to six, 12 hour day, let's say that you would be about in today's numbers, about $200. That's a nice, easy number for me to remember and do the math on, all right? So $200, that's what they agree. If they work, go and work in this, fee, in this vineyard all day long, this vineyard owner is going to pay them a fair day's wages, $200. They're gonna work 12 hours, get their $200 check. Everybody's happy. We're gonna to eat tonight. Our kids are gonna to eat tonight. Our family's gonna be provided for. So they go to work, 6 a.m. Three hours later, nine o'clock, Evidently, the vineyard owner is out running some errands and happens by this spot, this employment pool spot, and he notices there are some guys still there at nine o'clock in the morning who haven't found work yet for that day. He feels bad for them. He knows how much work means to them. He knows how important it is that they work that day. So he approaches them and said, hey, would you guys still be interested in working today? Absolutely even though there's only nine hours left in the workday well okay how about you come work for me and i will pay you whatever is fair they said oh that's great thank you so much they didn't even know how much they were going to get paid the owner just said i'll pay you whatever is fair this is good news for them because they get something that day three more hours pass it's noon Guy goes into town to get lunch. I don't know. He's back by the employment pool once again, sees that there are still people who haven't found work yet for the day. Same thing happens. You want to work for me today? You can only work six hours. Yes, we'll take it. Whatever. I'll pay you what's fair. Three hours later, 3 p.m., Jesus says this landowner goes by the employment pool again, sees more people still not working for the day. There's only three hours left in the workday. These guys haven't found any work, so they go to work. Same deal. Come work for me. Whatever time's left of the day, I'll pay you whatever is fair. Then the story that Jesus tells, as Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of God, as Jesus is telling us about what God is like, this story takes a bizarre twist. 5 p.m. Only one hour left in the workday. He goes by the employment pool again and sees some guys that are still there. They haven't worked today. They are dejected. They've gone all day. No work, no income for the day. And the landowner says, hey, are you still willing to work even if it's only for one hour? And they said, yeah, that'd be awesome. He says, come work for me I will pay you whatever is fair. So at six o'clock, the end of the workday, the landowner calls all of these workers together. They've been working some 12, some nine, some six, some three, some one hour. Calls them together and lines them up in the opposite order of when they got hired. The first group that he talks to are those guys who've only been there for an hour. They've done an hour's worth of work. They've only worked one hour He pays them, get this. Again, Jesus is telling us what God's like. He's telling us what the kingdom of God is like. He pays them a full day's pay $200. Amazing grace. And then for those who started at three and they only worked three hours, He gives them a full day's pay $200. That is amazing grace. Then come the guys who started at noon. They'd only worked six hours that day. He gives them a full day's pay, $200. Amazing grace. And the guys that started at nine, they'd only worked nine hours, gives them a full day's pay, $200. Amazing grace. And as you would expect, all of these workers are ecstatic. They can't believe what's just happened. This is amazing. This is incredible. We've never seen anything like this. There's never been a boss like this. We only worked nine hours. We only worked six hours. We only worked three hours. We only worked an hour. And we all got the full day's pay. Amazing. Well, as you would suspect, there's one more group. The guys that have been there since six in the morning, the ones that have put in the full day's pay, they're now looking at what's happened with some great anticipation, right? Look what he did for them. If he did that for them, imagine what he's going to do for us. And the vineyard owner comes up to this first group of hires and gives them the full day's pay, $200, just like they had agreed to. Can you imagine their response? They're ticked. They're mad. This is outrageous. We're the only ones who worked a full day. We're the only ones who worked 12 full hours. We endured the morning chill. We endured the heat of the afternoon. And these three stooges, they come along with an hour to go, and you give them the full day's pay, and you give the same thing you would give to us. That's not Right? that's not fair and at this point the landowner in the story gets a little puzzled and says wait wait, wait a minute didn't you say you wanted to work today yeah and didn't you agree to work a full day yeah and didn't we agree that if you worked a full day i would give you a full day's pay that's right and didn't i pay you for the full days wages for working for the full 12 hours the price that we agreed on before you started yes so what's the problem I don't think your problem is with what I paid you because you got what you deserved you got what you earned I think your problem is with what I paid them because they got more than they deserved. And you're absolutely right. They did get more than they deserved. They did get more than what they earned. But my heart just went out to them. I wanted them to experience grace. I wanted them to get what they didn't deserve. I think I think this is one of the hardest parables that Jesus tells. And here's why I think that. Because I'm a capitalist. At least I lean capitalist. I'm an American. This is not the way we do things in America, is it? This is welfare. This is not how we do things. This is, we we don't work in an egalitarian society like this, do we? This butts up against my capitalist leanings. This messes with my economy, the way that Jesus describes the kingdom of God may up there come down here. Oh boy. Oh boy. If I were to tell you this story was by anyone else but Jesus, if I said Gandhi told you this story, told this story, if I said Buddha told this story, you would dismiss this story as Marxist propaganda. But Jesus told this story. And I happen to be a Christian who lives in America, so I got to deal with it. You do too. So we need to understand what grace is, because that's what this story is about. And someday maybe we can talk about what this means, or economics, that's another conversation. But let's talk about what's, and you need to understand what some words are. If we're going to understand what this amazing grace is, that God is is a gracious God, and understand this story, what we want to talk about today, I need you to understand three words. The words are justice, Mercy and grace. Here's simple definitions of these three words. Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. And grace is getting what I don't deserve. Let me see if I can explain this. I've used this illustration before, but this is the best way I've ever found to, to demonstrate, to illustrate these three concepts for us to understand. Let's say... After church today, you go out to the parking lot down there and you go to your car and you walk up to your nice, shiny new car and you see me standing beside your car with a set of keys in my hand and I have just made a huge, big scratch all the way down the side of your nice, shiny car. I just keyed your car. And you're like, Larry, what are you doing? Now, this is hypothetical, all right? I don't, I don't normally do this more than once. All right. Larry, what are you doing? And I'm standing with the keys in my hand and the scratch on your car. Oh, oh, um, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? Now, in that moment, you have three options. There are three things you can do at this point. You can extend to me justice, mercy, or grace. Let me show you what each of these would look like in this situation that we can kind of get a picture of. Again, it's hypothetical. I don't normally do it. All right, Justice would be, Larry, that's not right. You have defaced my property. You have vandalized my stuff. I'm going to call the police. You're going to do hard times, Sam's. You're going to get justice. You're going to get what you deserve for this. And admittedly, that's what I would deserve. If I defaced your property, if I vandalized your property, I would deserve the justice afforded in law. That's, that's option one, justice. Option two is mercy. You could say, hey, I see that you're sorry. I know you're an idiot. Just, just forget about it, Larry. Just just forget about it. Go have a good day. Just forget about it. You get in your car and you drive home. That would be mercy. That's not getting what I deserve. What would grace look like? Getting what I don't deserve grace would be Larry I see that you're sorry and then you reach into your pocket and you take out your keys to the car that I just defaced and you say you know what Larry I want you to have this car and you give me the keys to this car I want it to be yours and let's drive it down to the gas station let me top off the tank for you And then we'll take it to the body shop and get this scratch buffed out and you just send me the bill. I'll take care of that because I want this car to be perfect for you. That's amazing grace, isn't it? So you see the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. And listen to me, this is God. This is God-like. This is why Jesus tells us the story so we'll know what God is like. Sometimes God decides to pad the payroll. Sometimes God decides to hand out triple bonuses to people who waltzed in with just one hour left in the workday. Sometimes God decides to give us way more than we deserve. Some of you grew up in what I would call a performance-oriented home where the underlying message as you grew up was, if you behave good enough, if you talk well enough, if you achieve highly enough, if you do enough, you will be loved. If, when? We will love you if. We will accept you if. And you grew up, grew up in an environment like that, and without realizing it, you have transferred that that same view of your parents onto God. And you think, well, that's what God must be like. So you think you have to earn God's approval. You think that you have to be on some sort of performance plan with God, that you have to pay your penance, that you have to do enough good to overcome all the bad. Listen to me. That wouldn't be grace. That would be justice, getting what I deserve. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That's justice. That's what we deserve for our sin against the holy God. The wages, the cost, the price of sin is death. But, Paul goes on, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's getting what we don't deserve. That's grace. And just like this vineyard owner in Jesus' story, who graciously gave a full day's wages for those of us who don't deserve it, God graciously, graciously gives amazing grace to people like me who don't deserve it and couldn't earn it. And just like it cost the landowner out of his own pocket to pay all these extra wages to all of these workers. Did you catch that? The only person who lost anything in that story was the owner. He graciously gave it as a gift in the same way God paid the price of his one and only son dying on a cross for you, being buried and raised from the tomb just for you. It cost God to give you that grace. That's how much he loves you. Ephesians 2 says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That's what saves you. And this is not from yourselves. In other words, you can't earn it. You can't do enough. You can't pay enough wages. There are no good works that you can do in order to receive this. This is not from yourselves. It is just a gift, the gift of God. So it is grace through faith. Another word for this is believe. And can I just tell you if you're thinking about saying yes to Jesus maybe for the very first time, this this is the hardest part. This is the hardest part. This is the part where you have to decide. Is all of this real or is this just a bunch of hocus pocus that somebody made up to make me feel good? You have to decide is it real or not? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is he really good? Can he really do something about my sin? The Bible says that when you come to believe in him, then you turn, or you, the Bible word is repent. The big biblical word repent, all this means is you stop going the direction that you're going in, you turn around, and you go in a new direction. As Jesus transforms, as Jesus changes your life, you repent. And then after you put your faith in Jesus, you've allowed him to save you you've repented, then you express that faith by being baptized, identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, being lowered down into water and raised up a new person. Can we just do, do me a favor? Get your, get your hand out for a minute. Just play along with me. I, I love this. I just learned this illustration. Put your hand up like this. Just put it up like this. So here's the picture. We're going to imagine this is, this is Jesus for a minute. Jesus died on a cross up, up, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw him into me, he said. So he dies on a cross, Jesus is buried in a tomb, and then he raises again. He resurrects, he lives forever. This is what baptism does. When I'm baptized, I'm dying to myself, the old me, the sin, I'm dying to that. I'm being buried in a watery grave. And then I'm raised up again as a new person, a new creature in God. When you're baptized, you go down into the water and you come up out of the water as a new creation in Jesus. Check check out some of these Bible passages that describe what baptism pictures. Colossians chapter 2. For you were, here it is, you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And then you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Romans 6, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined in his death and his life? For we died, we were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may live, I love this line, new lives. We're new. Now I know some of you are like, okay, okay, I, I get the belief thing, I understand the repentance thing, but the baptism thing. Is that really necessary? It, it sounds like it's bonus, right? It sounds like it's a, it's an extra add-on or extra credit. And I would be kind of. Let me be honest with you. There's there's a moment of, of this whole thing of baptism that's a little weird. Can I? I'll, I'll, I'll call it. It's a little weird, isn't it? Why would God invent baptism? When is it ever socially acceptable to go into a public place and dunk another adult? I, I mean, I did that when I was a kid. It was fine. But if I show up at the Dover pool next summer and I just decide to dunk another adult, they will kick me out of the pool. I will be banned from the pool forever that day. I won't be invited back. So why in the world would God ask us to be baptized? I think the answer is found in these passages I just read. Baptism is our association with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's what saves you. The death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what saves you. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Jesus does the saving through that payment that he made on the cross. Baptism is a watery grave where you go down symbolically as an old person. The old you dies, the pride dies, the sin dies. And now you come up as a new creation made brand new. The old is gone, the new has come. It is a tangible picture of the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Several years ago now, there was a, a, a movie that uh, Harrison Ford starred in. The, m- the movie is called "Regarding Henry." This is 25, 30 years ago now. In the movie, Harrison Ford plays a lawyer, and this guy is a world-class jerk. I mean, he's just a horrible, horrible person. The movie starts with him as, as an attorney concealing evidence so that his case destroys a man's character in court. He hides evidence all the time. He says, that's how I pay for my client's ticket out of trouble. As he cheats. He, he's just a horrible person. It's also how this, his character, Henry, also how he pays for his mistress and his other sinful lifestyle. He's married. He's got a girlfriend. He's living this shallow life, a shallow existence, living only for himself, not for his family. He has a, a, a young daughter that he hardly knows, never spends any time with her. And when he does, he's just fussing and yelling at her. He is a jerk. So one night, if you've seen the movie, if you haven't, well, I'm going to tell you what happens anyway. Um, <clears throat> one night after a party, um, he leaves his wife in the hotel room, and he goes down to a little bodega, convenience store, to get some cigarettes. And as he enters the store, he walks in on a robbery taking place in the store. And his, he is shot in this robbery. He is shot in the head. He actually dies. But somehow, because it makes a better movie, um, the the doctors are able to resuscitate him. And in the days ahead, his life hangs by a thread. He's in ICU, he's in coma. He lives. But as he comes through the coma, he lives, but his memory is gone. The tapes are erased. There's nothing left. He has to learn how to walk again. He has to learn how to talk again. Well, his wife and his daughter work with him and they continue to work with him and he is different and as the days pass he falls in love with his wife he becomes a soulmate with his daughter in one touching scene in the movie his daughter actually teaches him how to tie his shoes and he says how did you learn to do that she says well, well you taught me daddy he makes cookies with them, and they become close, a close family. And as his rehabilitation continues, he begins to read again, had to learn how to read again. And he starts going over his old case files, trying to restore his memory. And he comes to a file with some evidence in it that he had hidden. And he brings this hidden evidence to the man who he had beaten in court by concealing it. And he says, hey, I... Think this is yours It's a compelling story Beautiful story It's a story of life change From bad to good He begins As a certified first class Lying cheating jerk And ends up An upstanding Wonderful honest man Hollywood Frames the question Really really well In this film the question is, how do you fix a jerk? The answer is, you kill him. You take away their old nature. You bring them back as a new person. Or maybe I could say it like this. You die. You're buried. And you walk again. You're resurrected to live a new life. The old is gone. The new. Has come In Acts 22, Paul is preaching and he says this to this congregation that's around him. He says, and now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on his name. That's a great question, isn't it? What are you waiting for? What have you been waiting for? Why haven't you said yes to Jesus? To get into water and demonstrate that you believe in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Let me pray for you. If our communion team will take their places, please. Father, this morning we come to the cross. and We find a couple things when we get there. God, the first thing we find as we come to the cross of Jesus, as we find that the ground is level, that whether we've been following you for twelve hours, or nine hours, six hours, three hours, or even just one hour, we find that we all, in that moment, need the love and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace that you offer right there at the cross. That none of us have a better standing in your eyes because we've been doing this longer. But we all come to the cross as sinners in need of forgiveness. And we find that right there at the cross. And fathers, we come to the cross today as we come to this time of communion today, we also find the death of Jesus and we're reminded of the burial of Jesus and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and that new life that life that shows power over death and over sin and so we celebrate that with our lives we celebrate that now in this time of communion pray in the name of Jesus